abandonazo. I'd like to give a footnote to the whatever that was this morning. And the footnote uh, pertains to Dzogchen and a statement I alluded to briefly, and that is there, what there's kind of in the air in the Dzogchen tradition. I've heard this a number of times that when times become very degenerate, very degenerate in multiple ways, mental afflictions, very strong society, very degenerate, and so forth. During very de- degenerate times, that's a time when Dzogchen will be especially powerful, have very powerful means, really very effective in bringing about profound transformation, liberation, awakening. So one might wonder, well, why, why not good times? You know, why degenerate times? And I have some thoughts about that that may be true. Maybe not. But I'll share them. You can try them on for size. When Dharma is really flourishing, when the institutions of Dharma are really healthy, and there have been many occasions when they have been, it kind of comes in ebbs and flows. It's not homogeneously bad, not homogeneously good, but there are times when a great reformer like Tsongkhapa comes, and just suddenly there's just burst of clarity, you know? Or there is just the, the extraordinary, the golden era of Nalanda University, at the time of the Buddha, of course. But there have been these surges in various eras of history throughout, throughout Asia, because that's where Buddhism has largely flourished over the last 2,500 years. Um, and then other times when it really goes into decline, the 9th century, the 10th century in Tibet, a lot of decline because of Langdharma and so forth. So, but when... Dharma is really, when society is really flourishing, when there's really not much in the way of degeneration, Dharma is there, the institutions of Dharma, the practitioners, the teaching, the transmission, when it's all very healthy, then to practice Dharma by, by way of the culture, when it's really healthy, then why not? Practicing heavily acculturated Dharma, where there's a, a lot of your own culture in the Dharma. A lot of Tibetan Buddhism is very Tibetan. A lot of Japanese Buddhism is very Japanese and Chinese, and now, frankly, a lot of Western Buddhism is very Western. So much you're kind of wondering, which, which is the Buddhist part? It looks like a homeopathic dose, you know? And so, so when it's really healthy, then you go by way of culture, and then there's no downside to it. But when there's a lot of degeneration, when the institutions themselves have some pretty strong degenerate elements to them, when society itself is degenerate, when the transmission often is degenerate, heavily commodified, commercialized, trying to please the customers, that kind of thing. That's degeneration. That's clearly degeneration. And so in such cases where the society around is quite degenerate, and then because of the impact of society on one's mind, one's mind is quite degenerate. Strong mental afflictions, strong delusions, strong craving, hostility, because they're not even regarded as mental afflictions. They're regarded as just being normal. So when one's minded degenerate, and then when there's so many, many contaminants in the environment, pollutants, pesticides, all kinds of ways we're monkeying with nature, and the myriad ways through our, you know, the, 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 the beating that our nervous system takes by just a- adopting the modern way of life. I mean, it goes by way of the nervous system, and then how many stress-related illnesses are there? Probably too many to count. And so when there's degeneration of the body by means of injury, by, by society, way of life, and so forth, uh, degeneration of the mind for so many reasons, degeneration of the society, one can look, well, if you went in by way of society, by way of cultural institutions and so forth, you're going to pick up a lot of grime on the way. 
If you come in by way of your mind, it's going to be a rocky road. By way of your body, it's a, it's a damaged body by way of the nervous system and so forth. So that's going to be a tough road to hold, you know? And overall, developmental approaches where you roll up your sleeves and you ask, okay, now, hip ho, let's go. What can we do to achieve enlightenment? What shall we do? What shall we do, you know? Well, those are very well when you have a really healthy body, really healthy mind, very pure mind. The developmental approach really works. If you've ever watched the, the movie Yogis of Tibet, look at that Olympic athlete. He wasn't really, but the guy doing those yogic exercises for Tumu, man, oh man. I was thinking, who could do that here? And I was thinking, maybe Alonso. Maybe Alonso. But Alonso's mama, forget about it. I mean, that takes a really young body, you know, really healthy body. And you'd have to really work out. The rest of us over 20, uh, probably over the hill. So sorry, Kasia. Over the hill, Kasia. <laughs> you know. But if you've got a really good body for it, that's incredibly developmental. Using these strong asanas, jumping up into the air, going into full lotus, landing down, holding your breath, at, while doing a visualization and realizing emptiness. <laughs> so if you're up for it, it works. It's fantastic. Likewise, a developmental approach to shamatha. Okay, here's the Buddha image. Focus on it. And it's almost like being a wrestler and saying, there's your mind, there's you. Go for it. And if you've got a strong, healthy, virtuous mind, supple, vigorous, you just take your mind and you wrestle it and you pin it. And you pin it to the Buddha. I give. And you achieve shamatha. If you... But if your mind is the big, powerful wrestler and you're coming in as a little 90-pound weakling, get, guess who gets pinned? <laughs> you know? So when things are well with your body, with your mind, with society, the Dharma institutions, and so forth and so on, the development approach has proven itself. This is not speculation. It's true. It has proven itself to be effective many, many kinds. Right? But when outer and inwardly there's just a lot of degeneration, then that may actually not work. Not work very well. It just may be a struggle. And then lots of stress, lots of lung, lots of struggle, struggle, struggle. Depression, fatigue, and so forth. In which case, then Dzogchen is kind of like the one thing left over that we haven't tried. And that is, in try, in try, instead of asking what can we do to achieve enlightenment, the question is what can we stop doing to achieve enlightenment? But no, not to achieve enlightenment, to realize enlightenment, to unveil enlightenment. A way that bypasses culture. Among all the teachings I've had in, in, in Buddhism for the last 42 years, I don't know of any really that I could say are more culture-free than Dzogchen. I've read Dzogchen teachings from, oh, early on, from the 8th century and 14th century and 19th century and 20th century. It's just timeless. I mean... It, for, for actual practice, I'm sure a scholar could get in there and find some syntax or something. But overall, it's just timeless teaching. And again, whether is it Tibetan, Mongolian, Indian, it's, it's placeless also. It's location-free, culture-free. And so none of the downside, if, if culture and minds degenerate, this is outside of culture, it doesn't degenerate. And it doesn't entail getting there and working with the mind, but rather releasing the mind. It doesn't come by way of the body, by way of the mind. It does a double bypass. It goes right to awareness. Right to awareness. So in such degenerate times, 
We might want to just skip culture, skip history, skip our location, skip our body, skip the mind, and do a quadruple bypass and go right into awareness itself and then let the path rise up to meet us. Now Dzogchen, of course, when, when presented as something that is free of effort, spontaneous, all of that, that's really good, what's the word? Branding. Branding, marketing. It's very good for marketing. Because nowadays people are very busy. And so if you tell them, We've got a, we have something called Dzogchen, it's the Rolex of all of Tibetan Buddhism, the Rolls Royce. And by the way, it's effortless. And people who are really busy and lazy think, count me in. <laughs> count me in. And so they receive the teaching on Dzogchen, and lo and behold, they like them, because they're really likable. And so then a lot of people come to retreats, because they really like them. And if the teacher, the popularizer of Dzogchen, picks up on that, he says, oh, I'll just teach Dzogchen all the time. And I'll just tell, tell people, never mind the other more basic teachings. I'm just giving the pinnacle of teachings, the highest teaching. I'm just giving Dzogchen. Never mind Shamatha, the Sutrayana. That's for inferior people. Not like you, my clientele. So just practice Shamatha. Don't mess around with Shamatha. You don't need, need six perfect. You don't need the Sutrayana business. And really, you don't need that, all the visualization and so forth. No, just go with Dzogchen. And if one is a person of superior faculties and you hear the teachings and you gain realization of Rikpa, then they're right. If you're of medium faculties and they tell you just to rest in open presence and you do that for three weeks and become a Vidyadhara, then they're right. But if you're not of superior medium faculties, but you have dull faculties, and then you just hear, oh, I'll just practice Dzogchen all the time, I'll just practice Dzogchen. Well, that's about as realistic. I mean, if you really think you're going to achieve enlightenment, it's about as realistic as thinking, I'm going to watch Nova and the Discovery Channel for the next 30 years and get a Nobel Prize when I finish. In science. It's really the same. You know, you're not doing any of the work. You're not getting the education. There's no path to that. You watch Nova. There's no path. There's no sequence. Why should there be? It's entertainment. It's educated, scientific ent entertainment. That's very good. And likewise, but there's no path. They don't say, watch this for one month, and then we'll give you the next month. It's not an education. There's no degree, and you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and practice open presence in front of the television. So, as you can see, I'm very skeptical of teaching Dzogchen devoid of context, free of context, and Dzogchen without any sense of path. Because the great teachers I do Jum Lingba and Lerap Lingba and Padmasambhava and Kamachamaramuchi, absolutely no question. There's a path there. And if you and, and if you are again of sharp or medium faculty, you don't need the path. Boom, you just go right into Rikpa, you realize it, and on you go. But if you're not one of those very rare individuals, then let's not let's not kid ourselves. And it goes right back to doing whatever preliminary practice is necessary. Now I think of my own precious teacher, my primary Dzogchen Lama the Venerable Gyatrinambache, for whom I served as his principal interpreter for about seven years, from 1990 to 1997. And he just taught during, during this period, that one phase of his teaching, because he taught for about 40 years, not teaching much anymore, because he's quite old. But for that period, he just went back to text after text that laid out the path. That's all he did. It was just path, path. He, 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 he went through two texts. It was really one long text, but it became two volumes of the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, all laying out a path. 
It was exquisite. Preliminaries into shamatha. Boom. And then you go on to Vipassana and on you go. We finished that. Then we went to Padmasambhava. Natural liberation. Path. Preliminaries into shamatha. Vipassana. Boom. When we finished all of those, then he said, okay. When I asked him, you want me to translate something more? Then he said, okay, Vajra essence. A one-line re- reference to doing the preliminaries. Didn't even un- unpack them. Just say, do them. And then shamatha, vipassana, boom, on its way. So that's all he, had, all he taught for seven years that I was translating for him. He kind of like took that nail into pounded into my thick skull and then countersunk it and countersunk it three or four times to make sure at least the interpreter got it. <laughs> that this is, there's a path here and there's a sequence to it. And just to do a little bit of shamatha, a little bit of vipassana, a little bit of dzogchen, and just kind of doing that over time, well, it's nova all over again. Then you're not really following a path. You're sowing a lot of good seeds and hoping for the next life that maybe one day in the future life you'll get around to the path by sowing a lot of good seeds this time. Well, that's very wishful thinking. So there it is. But I think that's why it is said that in Dzogchen it's very, very powerful in degenerate times because then we give up hope. We give up hope on the external refuges. And this is in no way suggesting we don't rely on lamas. But very, very mature guru relationship recognizes really fundamentally going for the non-duality of your own mind and that of the guru and not idolizing the guru as somebody outside. But I think during degenerate times, it, it cuts it loose from all of the lovely ornamentation that can grow up around the beauties of Tibetan Buddhism and Indian Buddhism, and Japanese Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Southeast Asia Buddhism. And it just cuts like a knife right through that, to the core. Say, okay, now here's the ultimate refuge, and here's a path free of ornamentation, unelaborated, straight and direct. There it is. So, that was a little footnote. All right. So, among there's the... uh, I found a very interesting question that, uh, that was not asked. And I don't know why this particular question uh, came up that wasn't asked, but it came up. And so, gosh, what can I do? I have to answer, right? And the question was, it's a very odd question. I don't know why you didn't ask it. And that was, some of you will probably know the, the author, quite a brilliant science fiction writer by the name of Arthur C. Clarke, one of the finest science fiction writers of the latter half of the 20th century. Lived in Sri Lanka, as I recall. Um, Quite brilliant, quite, quite a very ingenious mind for science fiction. And the question here that you posed, what, that you didn't pose, uh, is what were Clark's three laws? And why you would not ask such a question, I don't know, but <laughs> there it is, I have to answer. And so here are Clark's three laws. <laughs> for those of who didn't ask but are nevertheless interested. Here's the first law. See whether this is worth spending our precious time. Here's the first law. When a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. That's the first one. I think it's a true law. I think it's a true law. You ready for a second one? They're short. The only way of discovering the limits of the possible 
is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. I think that was true too. I really like that. Here's the famous one. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's quite well known. I'm going to read it again. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, of course, for whom? For the person who doesn't understand the sufficiently developed technology. If you're an outsider, whoa, it's magic, right? Laser, lasers are magic. I just checked out a little bit of history. The, the first one was developed in 1960 using a, a ruby crystal. But the fact that it was, should be possible in principle was already laid down by Max Planck, great pioneer of quantum mechanics, and, Arth and Albert Einstein, lo and behold. So they laid it out, it's theoretical possibility. And then from 1957 to 60, there was really a concerted effort. People saw, you know, they, they picked up the scent, this should be possible. And a lot of research went in then 1960 developed the first laser, and then so many different types of lasers since then. But if you don't understand that technology, and it is actually relies upon quantum mechanics, then lasers are just flat-out magic. You really have to. It's supernatural light. Supernatural light. Unless you understand the technology, then you just see it's, it's really cool technology. Right? So those are, that's the answer to the un, unasked question of the three laws of Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, you got another unasked question. This, this question is, uh, well, in light of that, um, do miracles exist and what are they? And I don't know why you didn't ask that question, but there it is. I'll go ahead and answer that one too. But this is not from Arthur C. Clarke. This is from um, B. Allen Wallace. <laughs> and he answered you just today. This is fre fresh, off the fresh out of the oven. You ready? You want to know what a miracle is? I mean, you should want to know. So a miracle is simply an event that stems from a dimension of reality you haven't yet comprehended. <laughs> so you, clearly, I was heavily inspired by Arthur C. Clarke. You know, magic is just technology you don't understand. A miracle is something that does happen. Miracles happen all the time. But we call them miracles because we don't understand how they happened. And they came from some place we don't understand, so let's say some dimension of reality that we don't understand. The word is used. We've heard the use rather frequently. Miracles of modern medicine. Okay. And so for a person who's not medically trained, your jaw drops and say, that's just amazing, look what they could do. Fantastic, it's a miracle. It's a miracle of modern medicine, right? For those who devise that technology, that treatment, what have you, there's nothing mysterious about it, and there's nothing miraculous at all, because they actually understand how it works, right? Or miracles of modern science, the same thing. If you're, if you're not a scientist, you look at it and say, wow, that's a miracle of modern science. If you're a scientist who's been working in that field, nothing mysterious, nothing miraculous about it, so it's all a matter of perspective. If you're an outsider, it's a miracle, if you're an insider, it's just you know, something that happens. But what dimension of reality have we largely not comprehended in the modern world despite all of the marvelous breakthroughs of modern science? Is there anything that looms large that has an enormous impact on our lives 
on reality as a whole, on our joys and our sorrows, on the flourishing or lack of flourishing of human civilization, uh, that we simply do not understand at all, that is one of those uncomprehended dimensions of reality. And I would say that which looms largest above anything else is consciousness. So intimate, so clear, so obviously existent, and yet scientifically speaking, there's no consensus about any definition. They, they, do, they cannot define it. They have not agreed on any definition. That's an empirical fact. They cannot measure it by any instrument of technology. It's immeasurable thus far, maybe one day, but not yet, cannot be detected in anything. They don't know the necessary and sufficient causes for it. They don't know when it emerges, how it emerges. They don't know what happens at death. They don't know how it interfaces with the brain, and they don't know its role in nature. So I would say scientific knowledge of consciousness hovers marginally above zero, although there's plenty of literature out there. But philosophically and scientifically speaking, this is the great frontier. And so much of what we call miracles that are not miracles of science, miracles of medicine, but you say, well, that's just a miracle. The person was healed, or this happened, that happened. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Well, I can't imagine in every single case, but I will imagine in many, many, many cases, the dimension of reality from which that apparent miracle or that apparent magic arose is this almost entirely unknown dimension of reality called consciousness. So, is unknown, but the unknown quality, the, the extent of ignorance about consciousness, I think is largely unknown. So it's one of those sad cases where you're not only ignorant, but you're ignorant about how ignorant you are, because you cover it over with illusions of knowledge, pretending, whether consciously or unconsciously. I think it's mostly unconsciously, because I don't think there are that many dishonest people in modern science. Confused, sure. But dishonest? Well, I'm sure there must be some, but I don't think there are a significant factor. I don't think so. Or in modern medicine, people really deliberately out to deceive. The pharmaceutical industry, I think there are quite a few people deliberately out to deceive. There's just too much money at stake. And they really do deceive. And I think it's abs to say it's criminal is just way too wimpiest a, a term because they're harming so many people. When they put drugs on the market that they know are harmful and they cover it over, like, like Gautrin Bush often said, like a kitten that poops and then covers it over with sand. You know, They shit and then they cover it over with good advertising and lobbying and so forth. So I think that's really sociopathic. But it can, of course, there are also very many, many benevolent, altruistic, and honest people in the industry as well. So it's very, it gets very complicated. But in terms of one of the miracles that really should be called flat-out miracle, I want to return to a horse that isn't quite dead. So I'm going to beat it a little bit longer until it's totally dead. And that's the placebo effect. <laughs> if you thought it had any life in it at all, if you're willing in a public context to ever say those words, placebo effect, again, I'm now going to try to beat it out of you. So you will immediately break into hives. As soon as placebo, uh, <coughs> you will not be able to say it any longer because it's too humiliating and it's too deceptive. And so I just read this afternoon about it's not terribly unusual, but quite interesting. And it was an article published just this year. 
about some trials done for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. It was a terribly debilitating disease, a neurological disease. And the trial entailed placebo. And I really found this still, even though I've studied this for a long time. And by the way, I, for anybody listening on the podcast, I've written an extensive analysis of this in the chapter called Restoring Meaning to the Universe in the book Meditations of Buddhist Skeptic. Okay, finish that. Back to this, a more recent article that I had, could not have read when I wrote the book. But quite an interesting study, and that was treatment given where there's placebo effect manifesting for the treatment of Parkinson's. In other words, what the patients got who had Parkinson's had no therapeutic efficacy whatsoever. Zero. And in a significant percentage of the population of those who took this non-entity, I mean the sugar pack, whatever it was, what turned out to be placebo, a significant percentage, the symptoms as well as underlying causes of Parkinson's clearly and dramatically decreased. And there was actually, as a result of, I'm not going to say it, not placebo effect, mind effect, there was new growth in the very nerve fibers in the, in the Parkinson's effects. That is, those nerve fibers that are affected by Parkinson's disease and are, are damaged, are destroyed, those were re re regenerated by the power of this mind effect. Taking some ostensible medication that wasn't medication at all, and moreover, it was lingering. It went on for years and years and years by believing, expect, expecting, and hoping and desiring, of course, that this would work. Just exactly, where do we need to linger here? Because this is not hitting the headlines in the New York Times and the, and the JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine and so forth. They're not shouting this from the rooftops. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that people merely believing that something will help their, their Parkinson's, it doesn't just make them feel better, like, you know, like a pacifier or kind of an anesthesia. No. That belief targets exactly those nerve fibers that are damaged by Parkinson's and revitalizes them. Now that's smart, but they don't even know what those fibers are. That should just make it, then we should just say, okay, this is a miracle. But it's not a miracle of modern medicine because they don't understand it. It's not a, not a miracle of modern science because they don't understand it at all. It's a miracle of the mind, and that's what we don't understand. It's a miracle of consciousness. That's what we don't understand. So fair enough. But what is really quite awful when we have this marvelous frontier about which we know almost nothing, the actual nature of mind, not its behavioral expressions, its neurocorrelates, actual nature of mental events, actual nature of consciousness. We have this vast territory. To say it's in our front yard is too objective. It's in our backyard. It's where we are. It's where we live. It's the very core of our existence here. A true miracle, and it happens not only for Parkinson's disease, but such a wide variety, where just exactly what you expected, somehow, somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, let's use the word after all, it's a miracle. But it's a miracle that nobody's able, well, not many people have been able to market. And then it's covered over with an illusion of knowledge. Here it is. Here's a direct quote from a, 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 by a psychiatrist. The, art, the name of the article is Etiological Factors in Placebo Effect, published in 1964 in not, not some New Age journal, but the Journal of the American Academy, Medi Me J Journal of American JAMA, American Medical Association, JAMA. So top notch. Here's by a psychiatrist publishing this 
article had to go through a peer review process. In other words, highly intelligent editors who are deeply trained in medicine allowed this one to slip by. You want to get the definition of a placebo? Here it is, from one of the most authoritative medical journals on the planet. A placebo, I'm quoting, a placebo is defined as any therapeutic procedure that is objectively without specific activity for the condition being treated. So far, so good. In other words, it doesn't need to be a pill. It can be a gesture. It can be all kinds of things. It could be a medical intervention. It could be a surgery that actually doesn't do anything. So, so far, so good. I'm going to read it again. A placebo is defined as any therapeutic procedure that is objectively without specific activity for the condition being treated. In other words, it doesn't do anything. It has no effect. And then, a little bit later, a placebo effect. So now we define the placebo, right? A placebo effect is defined as the changes produced by a... You're right. <laughs> placebo. I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> that got through the peer review. It has no effect, but that's its effect. That's called illusion of knowledge. That's called dementia. I really do think that adherence to materialism induces a type of stupefaction or dementia or at the very least, a severe case of imagination deficit disorder. Because materialism says that the only things in the natural world that have causal efficacy are material things. It's called the closure principle. The only things that can influence the brain, the body, or anything else are material things. Period. Otherwise, you'd violate the principle of conservation of mass energy. That's the shtick. And so you take something like this placebo for Parkinson's effect, and it actually helps to alleviate the symptom part. And the only physical thing you can find anywhere in the neighborhood is the little old lady in the wheelchair, <laughs> the innocent bystander, the sugar tablet. And then you say, placebo effect. Right? Not joking. That's 1964. One might think, okay, well, okay, but we've certainly outgrown that. You know it's coming. <laughs> Here's an article from 2012. Studies designed to recognize the possibility. Whoop, let's see, I want to make sure I get the right one. Got some juicy ones here. Oh, yeah, there's another one. Oh, yeah, here it is. 2012. A placebo effect, even if caused by a well intentioned sugar pill. <laughs> <laughs> This means you have to be very selective about your sugar pills. You have to make sure that one has good motivation. <laughs> you, know? you don't want any sugar with bad motivation or poor intentions. <laughs> Just, where's, the, where's the wall I can bang my head against? You know, like, how dumb will this get? But I have to read the cell sentence. A placebo effect, even if caused by a well-intentioned sugar pill, can bring real improvement in a patient's condition but make sure you've chosen your sugar pill well, right? Oh, I think that's absolutely marvelous. Yeah. And yet there is hope on the horizon. Here's 
from the actually, oddly enough, interestingly enough, from the same article. And this is refreshing. Studies designed to recognize the possibility of real interactions. Because the, the gist of the article was, because the person who wrote it actually has Parkinson's, and saw that when certain types of treatment were used, it proved to be ineffective, and yet a significant percentage still got benefit. Benefit. In other words, the treatment didn't work. It was one of those negative results. But some percentage, 15%, 20%, still got benefit, long-lasting for 20 years later, still getting benefit from something that didn't work. In other words, they got benefit from someplace else, right? like their minds. The person has Parkinson. He says, you're throwing this all out. You're seeing the chemical didn't work, so ignore it and throw it into the garbage bin when 15 20% got benefit. And they didn't get it chemically. They got it from placebo, the mental effect. Therefore, don't throw that out. We need help here. Damn it. Stop throwing out beneficial results when they're attributed to the mind as if these are scientifically irrelevant. People still got benefit, not from you, but from some other source. So continue the study. Don't discontinue the study because you can't make any profit on it. That's a really harsh way of saying it. So this is a lovely statement. I want to end on a positive note here. Study, and this is positive with no sarcasm. St studies designed to recognize the possibility of real interactions among all factors, including placebo effects, would harness the effects of hope and expectation for, for patients' benefit rather than dismissing them as detrimental to science. It's a wonderful statement. But also, the statement shows the awful situation to which this is a response. That if you can't market it, don't research it. The notion that the mind is what the brain does is one of the greatest superstitions clogging the arteries of the scientific mind today. Because if the placebo effect is simply something that the brain does, the placebo effect, of course, is a mind, fact, mind effect. That should go without saying. And they should start calling that it today or 1955 when the term first came up, right, the placebo effect. But since it's clearly a mental effect, if the mind is what the brain does, then the placebo effect is what the brain does, in which case the placebo effect should be able to be induced by chemical or surgical, surgical or electrical intervention. Should be able to do that. If the mind is what the brain does, it's a mental effect, therefore it's a brain effect, then you should be able to give an actual drug that would induce the placebo effect with nothing outside at all, no information transfer. You just, in other words, you go to the pharmacy and say, which kind of placebo would you like? For arthritis, for rheumatism, for Parkinson's? For <laughs> and some of these are much more expensive, of course, because they, <laughs> they, they have much greater effects. <laughs> so it should either be a drug, or it should be able to induce the placebo effect by some surgical operation, or electrical stimulation. If the mind is what the brain does, then that should follow. Well, I got a hypothesis. They'll never, ever, ever, ever bring about the placebo effect by interventions on the brain for the very simple reason is that the mind is not the brain. And for the very simple reason that the, the brain is influenced, causally influenced by non-physical agents. And top of the list is information. So then that refers back to the earlier talk where information is primary. And if we understand that, that information is primary, think of conceptual designation now that we're into emptiness realm. Think of conceptual designation. How smart do you need to be to think this will definitely, I'm certainly hoping and expecting 
will alleviate the symptoms of Mike Parkinson's. That's a conceptual designation. And you believe it. And lo and behold, that conceptual designation targets exactly what needs to be done and then does it on a physiological level. That's a miracle. Because we do not understand. Scientifically, we don't understand. Contemplatively, yeah, it's understood. It's understood. It's the emptiness of all phenomena. The emptiness of the brain. Some brains being a little bit emptier than others. That was sarcasm. So, whether it's, we call it the placebo effect or we call it faith healing, the medical establishment, the scientific establishment has not been able to find any way for them to get credit or money for studying something that they had nothing to do with. Placebo effect. Therefore, there's almost no research on it. But faith healing there's some money in there. There's some money in faith healing. When you can say, just have faith, brother. Brother Miles, just have faith. Come right over here and I'm going to put my hands on your shoulders. Are you with me, brother? Are you with me, way? Do you believe? Do you believe? Hallelujah. And make donations to my institution whether or not you get a nice placebo effect. So if somebody has found money to make money, somebody has found a way to make money out of placebo effect, call it faith healing, whether they attribute it to once again to somebody outside of you. In other words, the head of their institution. Uh, I think God, generally. <laughs> the head of the institution, the CEO of the church. Right? And you know, if God did it for you, then of course you're disempowered again, just like you're disempowered in the other cases, placebo effect. Because after all, you didn't cause it. It's a little, little late in the wheelchair that caused it. So no matter what, big institutions are really out to, <laughs> frankly, to disempower individuals. And it's been going on for centuries. In the medical establishment, almost like they're giving sacraments. You cannot get healed without taking our medicine. And if it's a sugar pill, we're going to call it, and I actually saw this term, placebo drugs. I actually saw that term in a serious article. They weren't being sarcastic. Placebo drugs. Right? They use the word without, without tongue-in-cheek. And so, if you come to a hospital and you get cured, they want to make sure that you got cured because of something they gave you and that there's a market value in it. Scientific community wants more prestige, more credit. Well, three things, the three jewels of the mundane world. Wealth, prestige, power. Scientists want it. Human beings want it. They're not special. So there it is, faith healing, and yet there it is. It all stems from a dimension of reality that we have not yet sufficiently comprehended. And the Dzogchen practice, this is where we loop back. The Dzogchen practice comes right into that and says, but this is what this is all about. Dzogchen is, first of all, to fathom either through your mind or bypassing your mind, whether you're going settling the mind its natural state, that's through your mind, Awareness of awareness saying, not interested, I'm going to bypass. And you just go right to awareness of awareness. Either way, you're getting to the core. The actual, the essential nature, as Benjamin just said, the essential nature of consciousness, and you're seeing it directly. Seeing it directly. Right? And you're seeing its nature, that it is pure and luminous, by nature blissful. And that should give a strong, strong suggestion 
that the source of the, of the mind effect, the source of faith healing, you're looking now in the right direction. You're looking into a pure and luminous space of awareness. Break through that, it's even just more pure and more luminous to Rikpa itself. So, that was a long footnote. We return now to Shantideva, a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. We're going to spend just four days, today through Thursday, on the second of the four applications of mindfulness. It's a powerful one. It's a big one. It's one that we enormously care about. This is in the Bodhicharvatara. And it starts, we'll start now having finished the section on the body, ever so concise. Go down to verse 88. And by the way, uh, as of today, I made this section of the ninth chapter available for all of you here. Uh, you can get it either downloaded or get a hard copy, as usual, from the front desk. Okay? So I just took that, this out of Vesna's in my translation. Uh, she translated from the, San- I, from the Sanskrit, I from the Tibetan. It's the only translation that draws from both that we have today. So, we go to feelings. We know this is now going to be feelings viewed from the perspective of Madhyamaka Middle Way, focusing on the emptiness of inherent nature of feelings. So we're jumping into deep, deep waters. Immediately. When we just step back to where we came from, Oliver, that was pretty deep already. This body that has mass, that has location, that's filled with elementary particles, atoms, cells, and so forth and so on. But here we are incorporated, here we are embodied. That feels about as real as it gets, right? Feels about as real as it gets. Because again, we have the insider's view and the outsider, the first person and the third person perspective, even on our own bodies. Because we look at our hands, and we, what we see from, as we look at our hands is pretty much what other people when we see when they look at our hands. So that's the third person. But from the insider's view, by way of tactile perception, well, that's really a first-person perspective. But it uh, seems awfully real. And of course, when we consider, yeah, and, and where did it come from? Egg and sperm, jet, the development through the, through the uh, formation of the fetus and the womb and so forth. So it seems awfully real. And those are only, what, just a few lines devoted to seeking to fathom the absence of inherent nature of the body and all of its constituents right down to the atomic or elementary particle level. And now we move right on to something that if it doesn't feel quite so substantial, so tangible, so located in space, nevertheless looms extremely large on a horizon when we're experiencing it or experiencing them. And that is, of course, feeling. So we start in verse 88. If suffering truly exists, so again, what does that mean? Let's be awfully clear. Because this is like doing surgery. We're not here to refute the existence of suffering, which would be idiotic. And yet we're seeking not to reify suffering, not to view suffering as we have been viewing suffering, as something that exists by its own nature, that simply dished up all by itself, just presented, thrown on our lap. Here it is, have a big chunk of feeling, suffering or joy, pleasure or pain. It seems, its experience is something massively, overwhelmingly, and sometimes unbearably <coughs> real. 
independent of any kind of conceptual designation. And he's going to challenge that. It seems like a hopeless task to try to persuade anybody when they're experiencing very strong emotion and especially suffering. To try to persuade anybody when they're suffering physically and or mentally that this arises only independent upon conceptual designation. It doesn't get from its own side. Sounds like an absolutely hopeless argument. Like, don't even open your mouth. I know what you say is going to be false. What's he going to say? Because everybody's aware of this. He says, if, tr- if suffering truly exists, why does it not oppress the joyful? Okay, not transparent, but I did check commentary. Read his whole his commentary, because I translated this years ago. Um, just the ninth chapter, again from Sanskrit to Tibetan, just on my own, just this ninth chapter. So what's he getting at here? If suffering truly exists, why does it not oppress the joyful? Here's what he's getting at. And that is, if suffering arises, let's say in your mind, so misery, anguish, despair, depression, sadness, grief. And it's inherently existent. Then, if this is true, and of course this is not obviously true, this is going to be a very short presentation, nothing here is going to be obvious. If it's true, it's going to come only through very, very penetrating investigation. But he's throwing this out like majamaka koans. Why does it not oppress the joyful? And that is if suffering takes over your mind, and it certainly feels that way sometimes, and it's inherently existent, then it should not be possible for it to give way to joy, to gladness, to cheerfulness. If it's inherently existent, it should just be absolutely there. But we know, in fact, that one can be grief-stricken, and then after some time, the grief is gone, and joy comes in. But if the, if the suffering, the misery was inherently real, then and joy tried to arise, the suffering should loom so large that the joy, all the life force of the joy would be strangled. It should be oppressed. If you're really suffering, there should be no possibility for joy. That's the implication. I, I don't suggest it's obvious, but that is the implication. Let's read a little bit more. If delicacies and the, and the like are pleasure... That is, eating delicious food, lovely music, hearing lovely music, and so forth. If they are a pleasure, why do these not please someone struck by grief and so forth? So if they are by nature pleasure, then why don't they simply overwhelm the grief? So either way, if either pleasure or sorrow, happiness or misery, if they're inherently existent, it would suggest that they could that one could no way supplant the other. They're inherently existent, which by implication means immutable. Let's see if we can unpack this in any way that gives you more of an in. If it is not experienced, so here's the response. If it is not experienced, because it is overpowered by something more intense, so for example, if somebody is suffering from grief, loss of a loved one or whatever it may be, and then you say, well, well, never mind, have some ice cream but it doesn't make their suffering go away. Surprise, surprise. That is, if it is, not experienced, if it is not experienced because it is overpowered by something more intense, that is intense grief, and then you're trying to, or you say something, oh, but you look so attractive today. You're trying to give them some mental joy. I know you're grief-stricken, but that's awfully nice lipstick you're wearing. <laughs> Somehow, you know, it might work in another situation, but here it doesn't cut the mustard. 
So he's saying, if that's the case, it's not experience because it's overpowered by something more intense. How can that which is not of the nature of experience be a feeling? What he's saying is, it's this whole causal dynamic. How does one give away to an, uh, give away to another? And the hypothesis here is, well, then you're getting some subtle pleasure, but it's overwhelmed by coarse misery. So you're actually experiencing both simultaneously, and that is you're getting something that's pleasurable. Somebody complimented you, or you're seeing a beautiful cloud formation, or a beautiful painting, or what have you. And so one hypothesis is, okay, well, you are getting the pleasure from this pleasurable thing, a good hedonic response. After all, it's a really tasty food, or whatever it may be for hedonic pleasure of the mind. And so the suggestion here is that on a subtle level, you are experiencing the pleasure, but it's overwhelmed by the coarseness of the grief. And his response to that is, look, a feeling is not a feeling if you're not feeling it. There's no such thing as unexperienced feeling. It's either there or it's not. It's not too complicated. It's there or it's not. So let's not talk about there being a subtle feeling while it's overwhelmed by a coarse feeling. Because if it's overwhelmed, then the subtle feeling isn't there at all. But how does it get displaced? Well, he continues. Objection. Objection, Your Honor. This is actually comes in the text. Surely there is suffering in its subtle state while its gross state is removed. So you can be really happy about something, and then something makes you miserable, but on this subtle level, subtle happiness or subtle suffering. Subtle suffering continues. So in other words, he's saying, suggesting you can work in two, two multiple bandwidths, coarse and subtle simultaneously, and they may be in, incompatible, incongruous, happy here, sad here, or vice versa. The Majjamika response is, if it is simply another pleasure, then that subtle state is a subtle state of pleasure. If it is simply another pleasure, then that subtle state is a subtle state of pleasure. He's simply coming to the same state, same statement that if it's not experienced, it's not a feeling. So it, it's, it's just a way of talking, but it's not experiential. If suffering does not arise, now here we get to a really reasonable response that might seem to be, okay, this is the final word. If suffering does not arise when the conditions for its opposite have arisen, so there you're, you're, you're cheerful, you're feeling ha mentally happy, and then you hear some incredibly bad news, so some cooperative conditions come in, and your cheerfulness vanishes immediately, and you're grief-stricken. In other words, if the feeling does not arise when its conditions, the feeling for happiness doesn't arise when its opposite, opposite conditions have arisen, you've just heard some really bad news, then happy feeling vanishes and miserable feeling arises, does it not follow that a feeling is a false notion created by a conceptual fabrication. That is, does this shift in feeling not occur simply because of a conceptual designation? Or is it something more real, more inherent than that? Therefore, and this is the final, final verse, and I do not expect this to be, and I explain why, I do not expect this to be like, oh, yeah, I read that, yeah, you persuaded me, yeah. Feeling definitely has no inherent existence. Not so easy. But the final verse on this line of thinking is, therefore, this analysis is created. He's presenting this way of thinking as an antidote to that false notion. For the meditative stabilizations, the jhana, that arise from the field of investigations are the food of contemplatives. So he goes back to jhana. This, the degrees of meditative insight, or jhana, that arise from the field of investigations are the food of contemplatives. In other words, somebody's going to ben benefit from this type of investigation, this line of reasoning, this type of investigation. 
But it's for those who experience the meditative stabilization, the jhanas that arise from that type of investigation. Those are the food, the nourishment, the healing, the food of contemplatives. But if you're not a contemplative and you've not developed jhana, namely shamatha, then this medicine may not work. It's a, t- it's, a, it's a tough sell. To my mind, it's a tough sell. To talk about elementary particles, to talk about quantum mechanics, cool, really fun, entertaining, especially if it's true. Because it's quite distant from our experience. And some of you have experienced this. And that is in the body, having that sense of earth, water, fire, air arising and seeing that they're just empty appearances arising in the space of the body. Get some taste of that. Not by powerful logical analysis, but some experience. And then compatible with, illuminated perhaps by logical analysis. But when it comes to pleasure and pain in the body, especially pain, and when it comes to pleasure and pain, especially pain, in the mind, to persuade anyone that it's not inherently real, it has no existence from its own side, it arises purely independent upon conceptual designation, which is to say, if you withdrew the conceptual designation, the designated suffering would vanish. That's a tough sell. And that's exactly what he's getting at here. Exactly what he's getting at here. By implication, and so he is really giving us a steep road here, by implication, if it did inherently exist, it would be inert, it would be impervious, it could not be, in, uh, how do you say, influenced by cooperative causing conditions. It would be inherently real. And that's the implication for true existence across the boards of any kind. It's said to be so there in the realm of physical reality. That entity, that physical entity that inherently exists would be then impervious, would be cut off, isolated from all kinds of causal interactions because it inherently holds its own attributes, which means it won't budge. It is what it is forever and it cannot be influenced because it's got a vice grip on all of its inherent attributes. The whole is seizing onto its attributes. Right? So the implication of immutability, of a frozen universe, to go back to that quantum mechanics theme, kind of makes some sense. But when it gets so up close and personal as physical pain or mental pain, it's tough, I think. I think it's tough for such lines of analysis to make a dent on our reification of these feelings that we so profoundly care about. You know? I think it's difficult. So how, if it's true what I'm saying, if you found it easy, then I congratulate you. But if it's not so easy, if it looks like that's like wordplay, it's like just wordplay, like a crossword puzzle, but if you're miserable, you're miserable, that's inherently real. There's nothing more real for you than your misery or your physical pain. If you've been injured, you've been damaged, you're ill, What's more real for you than that? More real than your body itself is the misery arising in that space of sensation and feeling. How could there be even a way to prepare ourselves that we could take that type of reasoning seriously, that it actually have an impact, actually get through, actually shift our way of viewing, which means experiencing suffering and joy? How could that possibly happen? Well, Shantideva says it. He says it in so many words, crystal clear. In the other text, how he began this whole section. It's good to memorize. 
He said, once the mind has been made serviceable in that way, then proceed. Right? Shamatha. Who first taught me shamatha and vipassana? He said, you've achieved shamatha, vipassana is easy. That's what he said, verbatim quote. But you can imagine if your mind is still as usual, business as usual, caught up in the ordinary ruminations, caught up in the, just the spasmodic oscillations between laxity and excitation, all of it filtered by the dense haze and the smog of rumination. In the midst of that, you take this completely dysfunctional mind and saying, I want to understand Majamaka. You can't stop conceptually designating. You're in an obsessive-compulsive mode of designating all the time with rumination. You don't step outside of that cloud. You're going through all of your studies of Madhyamaka in this cloud of delusion, ongoing flow of rumination, which tires you out and so you fall into laxity and then fall asleep and wake up the next morning so you can be you know, have experienced once again obsessive compulsive delusional disorder. And that mind, which is totally stricken by obsessive compulsive delusional order, says, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and understand Madhyamaka. Maybe well enough to write a paper, even a dissertation. And you might even get an academic position or be able to pass your geishi degree. Maybe. But will the arrow strike the target? Shantideva suggests not. Oh, Tsongaba suggests not. That's why the Vipassana comes after the Shamatha. Right. That's Tsongaba. Oh, that's Padmasambhava. That's Dujum Lingba. Oh, that's Buddha. That's Lerab Lingba, and so forth and so on. So hard to imagine why that so obvious truth is being so ubiquitously ignored. But on the base of making the mind serviceable, so we can use it like a sharp knife. Then consider also the incremental steps, large steps actually, to be able to move into that type of analysis. And that is sharpen your mind, make the mind serviceable, relax, stable, and clear. And then apply that closely, as we did so fleetingly for the first four weeks. Apply that quality of awareness, our best approximation, best achieve it, but in the meantime, our best approximation and probe right into the nature of feelings that you experience. Mental at feelings, now pleasure, pain, indifference. Feelings arising in the body. And just take that laser mind without any of the Madhyamaka reasoning. Just some shamatha and then close application of that mindfulness you've developed through shamatha. And like a stiletto, like an ice pick, like a laser, something sharp and pointed and very bright, penetrate right into, as Elizabeth did, right into the feelings arising in the body, discomfort arising in the body. And you start there not with mind-numbing anguish, pain that just makes you almost pass out, but start out with moderate ones. Pain that arises after sitting for 15, 20 minutes and your, your knee hurts. Tolerable. That's where to start. There's nothing that doesn't become easier by familiarization. So you start with the little pains. Start with the little pains in the body and the little unhappinesses, the malaise, the perturbations, <coughs> the little spikes of dukkha that arise in the mind and you rise through the occasion rather than immediately wanting to apply an anesthetic, an antidote, move away, please go away, and all that, all of our avoidance techniques 
saying, okay, this level of physical discomfort, this I can investigate. This level of mental dismay, this I can investigate. It doesn't, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't make me want to simply flee. And so apply that. Apply that sharp, stable, clear mind. And penetrate. And see if you find what Elizabeth found. And many people have found. Even in a weekend retreat, a one-week retreat, four weeks. And that is when you probe right in the nature of the, that feeling, it, it dissipates. It kind of vanishes. It didn't wind up having any nucleus. It would hit hard, like a hard strike, a hard landing. Gotcha! But when you probe right into it, it more dissolves. Fades away, and then you don't, sign, you don't find it. If it were inherently real, if that feeling were inherently real, the more closely inspected it, the clearer it should manifest. Isn't it true? If it's really there, then the more closely inspected, penetrated, it should just rise up to meet the occasion, and you have a smack-on, hard, hard collision with suffering if it's inherently real. But by penetrating in that way without the conceptual designation, without probing and thinking, it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt, no, just go in without the conceptual designation, without the commentary, without the verbalization, and just go in nakedly. Then lo and behold, it evaporates. Do the same thing with mental suffering. A little bit of unhappiness, a bit of boredom, a bit of anxiety, a bit of something unpleasant. Instead of somebody identifying with it, probe into it and see whether it stands even a, a close empirical investigation. Boom, just looking at it with samadhi. See whether it withstands it. And if it does withstand it, if you observe it, and it's still there, because it may be, then good. Closely apply mindfulness now and investigate, permanent or impermanent. Is it static? Is it there like a great big immutable fist? Or when you look, is it made of little staccato moments, which would already suggest some kind of breathing space? Permanent or impermanent? That starts to loosen things up a little bit, to unreify. When you see it wasn't as solid, as hard, as mutable as I thought, when I really went in there with some power of shamatha, investigated, I saw it was all staccato. It was like strobe, like that. All fizzing, fizzing, fizzing. And then probe right into its nature. Is it by nature, intrinsically, is it right there? Does it have a nucleus inherently existent? Probe right into it. Probe right into that which seems to be the, the real cause. If we take seriously the notion that feeling is a way of experiencing an object and is not in the object itself, I think it's a very powerful insight. Basic 101 Buddhist psychology. Feeling is not in the object. Feeling is not in the sensation, the tactile sensation. Feeling is in the way of apprehending it. It's a really powerful hypothesis. I think it's actually, of course, I think it's true. If that's the case, then bypass the feeling and go right into that which seems to be the very source of the feeling. The feeling seems to become, why are you hurting? Because I've got such an intense earth element sensation in my elbow. Or I've got such fire element. I've got such water element. Whatever it is, it's going to boil down to one of the four a combination. And if you have that sense of the feeling actually arising from the physical, from, the, from any of the four elements, then skip the feeling and go right into the element and check, are you, did you do it? Is that feeling actually coming from the physical? And that's where you may find that the, the feeling just evaporates. Because you're finding, no, it's just the physical. 
In the felt, there is just the felt, and the sense of in the tactically perceived, there's just the tactically perceived, but the feeling is just a way of experiencing it. But when you focus in on the tactically perceived, the feeling alters, and you find, aha, the feeling actually isn't arising from the object. It's coming from the way of experiencing it, and that may have to do with how I'm conceptually designating it. And let's go to the third mark. We did impermanence. We did just straight samadhi. Then we did impermanence. Then we look into, is it sukha or dukkha? Is it true source? What are the true sources of sukha dukkha? And then we go into anatta, anatman, non-self, and that is so the feeling is arising. Does it conventionally exist? Sure it does. Of course it does. Nobody here to say that, that suffering doesn't exist at all. That's idiocy. But the question is, when it arises in the space of the body, when it arises in the space of the mind, does it by its own nature have an owner? Does it have an owner? Does it belong to you? Is there something in its nature that says, I am yours, you are mine, we are coupled? Is it really there? Does it really have an owner? The colors you perceive don't have an owner, you're just witnessing them. The sounds you hear don't have an owner, you're just hearing them. The fragrances you smell, they don't have an owner, they're just fragrances. Are the tactile sensations any less and are the feelings in the mind any less or any more? Or are they just the same? If they're ownerless, they're a lot easier to bear. And that's basic vipassana. Three marks of existence. So imagine, just, let your, just ma- let your imagination rove. Imagine having the stability and clarity of just samadhi itself. So you can go in with that laser pointer and see what, what can that do. That actually is one way. One way of getting at least some respite. And that is if your suffering is here, as in the case of that yogi, who is, as I recall, a disciple of uh, Ramakrishna with throat cancer. And when the doctor went in to probe it, remember? Probe it. It was anguish. And he said, stop. So it was really, really painful. Stop. And then the yogi went into samadhi. And then while sustaining the samadhi, he said, now you can go. Because he directed his attention. This is my interpretation. He directed his attention elsewhere. And then the, the doctor could fiddle around as much as he liked. And there was no pain. Because unfelt feeling is no feeling. There was no feeling there because he directed no attention to it, which means probe away. But I'm directing my attention to a a nicer neighborhood because this is really a bad neighborhood. So that's one way. Power of samadhi. That's without wisdom. That's just actually having a mind you can direct at will. Doesn't cure anything, but boy, it's a nice side effect free way of not experiencing suffering when you don't want to. But then bring in just the three marks, just as if this is kind of child's play or something. But the three marks of existence, of impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. Imagine, just imagine gaining some really experiential realization in each of those three with respect to suffering. So you're actually viewing the suffering that arises in body and mind as just moment, moment by moment pulses arising, rising, passing but nothing really tangible, nothing really immutable, nothing really that you can wrap your, like trying to grab a waterfall, not substantially there. And then seeing that that which is the, the seeming basis for it, something in the mind that's making you unhappy, something in the body, some sensation that's giving you misery, you look and say, but that actually isn't the source of either the misery or the pain. It's not, because all you have to do is do that ontological probe into it. You see, no, it's not. It's not true. It's not there in the object. 
Not in the mental object, not in the physical object. Imagine having that insight, and then on top of that, realizing that the suffering arising in your mind has no owner. It's not you and has no owner, and the suffering arising in the body is not you and has no owner. Imagine you've done all that groundwork. And then you come in with the Madhyamaka. Then you could do some major damage. Major damage. This could be real. Where you could see, aha, given that samadhi and that fundamental level of insight that I've already gained into three marks of existence. Now, I see. Conceptually designated on a very subtle level. Release the conceptual designation. It does not arise. On a very subtle level, the experience of that suffering has to be designated as suffering. Release the designation. See its empty nature. The suffering vanishes. Because you've seen through it. Let's practice. Now I would like to suggest a perspective. You've heard it before, but maybe I can more clearly articulate it. A perspective for all the three modes of shamatha that we've been exploring. Whether it's shamatha directed to the field of the body and the sensations of the breath arising therein, or shamatha directed to the space of the mind and the mental events arising therein, or awareness of awareness. In all three of these modes of mindfulness, of shamatha, here's a suggestion. Let your awareness remain motionless. Let your awareness illuminate the space of the body without entering into it. Illuminating the sensations arising of earth, water, fire, air without entering into them. Observe the feelings arising in the body without entering into them. The sensations of the breath within the field of the body. But let your awareness remain in its own place, holding its own ground like a king or a queen on the royal throne. Don't move from your throne. Your awareness remains still, illuminating the body and whatever arises within it. In settling the mind, illuminate the space of the mind, but without moving from your throne. Resting in the awareness of awareness. And of course, you stay right where you are. Begin by recognizing the stillness of your own awareness. As as you allow your body, speech, and mind to settle in their natural states, observing them from awareness's own place.
Let your awareness rest in its own space, the space of awareness. Without collapsing into any smaller space, the space of the body, the space of visual impressions, or even the space of the mind. Rush your awareness unmoving and let it illuminate the space of the body. And first of all, let it brightly shine upon and illuminate the tactile sensations, earth, water, fire, and air that arise within this domain. Observe these tactile events nakedly. Having observed them clearly, withdraw the conceptual designation. Is there anything here in this whole field of the body that is really there from its own side? Substantial, real, physical. Are even the contours of the body, are they real, inherently existent? Or is everything of which the body is composed simply an array of empty appearances arising from space vanishing back into space? Let alone with no owner, 
not even with any inherent identity or existence of their own. Empty appearances. Configurations of space. Is there anything here perceptually or conceptually as you imagine the various parts, the components of the body, from the large vital organs right down to the atoms that constitute them? Is there anything here to which you can point and say, this is the body, this is the real body? It's absolutely there from its own side, a purely given, something presented to us, already packaged, existing in and of itself. Can you find it anywhere? There's no doubt that feelings arise in the body. And the ones that really catch our attention are the painful ones. There's no question they exist. The only question is how do they exist? And must we simply be their victims?
attend closely to the feelings arising in the body now. With a sharply pointed mind, with samadhi, like sending a missile into its target. Penetrate the feeling and see if you can find its core. Something that's really there, regardless of the way you experience it, it demands, because it is by nature suffering. Can you find that core? Penetrate through the feeling to that which appears to be its objective source, some sensation in the body that's giving us misery, seems to produce misery. Penetrate through the feeling to the tactile of it. Examine ever so closely. Is the feeling right there intrinsic to the objectively appearing sensations arising within the field of the body? Are the two immutably or intrinsically fused that bear tactile sensations and the feeling of pain? Quiet your mind like a stealth missile that comes in under the radar. And go right into the origin of the pain. Can you find it? You find the pain emerging from some source beyond your control that is purely objective, 
existing in and of itself. Step back and observe. Is the very investigation of pain itself, does it have any impact on the experience of the pain? Does it accentuate it, intensify it? Leave it untouched, unchanged? Or does it diminish the pain? Examine closely the observer participancy of the experience of pain in the body. Are you dancing with it, or is the dance of pain a solo, simply being presented to you? Once again, the balancing act of clearly illuminating the feelings in the body, clearly illuminating the tactile sensations which arouse such feelings. Illuminate the space of the body and whatever arises within it, but let your awareness remain in its own place. Like sending out lasers of light, but without becoming embedded immersed in the body, its sensations or feelings.
relax. Let the light of your awareness illuminate the space of the body and whatever arises therein without moving, without projecting, without grasping. Sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. Hopefully this becomes clearer and clearer through experience, this 
natural sequence. It's been heralded for the last 2,600 years in authentic Buddhist teachings of the shamatha being the precursor to Vipassana. And the Madhyamaka view is a theoretical framework for engaging in Vipassana. It is to Vipassana what, what theoretical physics is to experimental physics. The Madhyamaka view is to Vipassana. It's the theoretical framework to actually do the hard work. But you can't do the hard work. You can't do it effectively. Really exploring the role of conceptual designation, conceptual imputation. What role does this have in this observer participancy? What role does it have in our experience of the body, the feelings, the mind, other people, the natural environment, the universe at large? What role does conceptual designation have? How can we possibly explore that? if the mind is totally mired down in a morass of obsessive, compulsive, and delusional thinking. It just seems impossible. You know. That you can't explore something that you're suffocating from. That you can't turn off at will. So I think very hard for Madhyamaka view to really strike the target of mental afflictions to dispel them, to dispel their resultant suffering. If one doesn't practice Vipassana. Just philosophy. It's denuded, decontextualized philosophy, which by itself, no reason to believe that's going to be effective in alleviating the sufferings of the mind. And for the Vipassana to be effective, having a mind where you can have some real control over the degree of conceptual designation, including turning it off, and then turning it on, and then seeing what it's like when you've not only conceptual designated, but you've reified. And seeing that steps, no conceptual designation, des designation, reification. But if your mind is like a rat in a, dry, in a clothes dryer, <laughs> just kidding. Can you imagine? That would not be pleasant. <coughs> Full speed ahead. And that poor rat can't get traction anywhere. It's just going... Bouncing off the walls. If your mind is like a rat in a clothes dryer, how can that rat possibly investigate the nature of the clothes dryer? <laughs> I don't think very feasible. So there we are. Let's continue practicing. Enjoy the evening.